and welcome to From the EBPL Archives, Encore Presentations from the East Brunswick Public Library. I am your host, Melissa Hosick. Good evening, my name is Melissa Hosick and I am the Adult Programming Librarian at the East Brunswick Public Library. Welcome to Jewish Responses to the Shoah, Insights from Personal Memoirs. This event is produced by Dr. Michael Kessler. Since his retirement in 2006, Kessler has written extensively of his and his late wife's experiences during World War II. This is the seventh event he has planned in a series that chronicles the history and culture of Jewish populations in Europe before the Holocaust. This program is sponsored through a partnership of Dr. Kessler, the Library, and the East Brunswick Public Library Foundation. I would like to introduce Mayor Brad J. Cohen, who would like to share some words before the program begins. Thank you, Melissa. Erev Tov Kol Chavarim Shali. I hope that all of you are going to enjoy what has traditionally been such a terrific program that uh, Mr. Kessler has brought to the East Brunswick Public Library for the past several years. As many of you know, uh, my father-in-law is a concentration camp survivor himself. Itself. He'll be turning 96 in July. And um, so this is a, a, a story that, uh, and a, um, a history that's deeply rooted in my entire family. Um, but I think that after the events of the last two weeks, it's abundantly clear that, that um, it's just important that we learn from our history uh, because it just seems that um, what wasn't all that long ago has um, easily been covered up by the dust of time. And uh, as generations move on, um, there's a greater tendency to look forward and not look back. And um, a great philosopher once said that if you don't learn from your history, you are bound to repeat it. And, um, and, and we're just seeing that. And we didn't have to see that the last two weeks. Um, we've seen rises uh, of anti-Semitism that's been going on, um, whether it was the Tree of Life or Poway in California. Um, even in our own town, we've had episodes and bouts of, of uh, anti-Semitism. So you don't need to be back in um, Eastern Europe to to um, retrace our roots to know that this isn't something that we're easily able to, to escape. So I think that the fact that Mr. Kessler has been able to put together such a wonderful program and is continuing to keep this as part of our education just really just helps to not only for ourselves, but to, to educate our children so that they know our, uh, the history and learn not only from their history for people like ourselves, uh, but if any of you have been to either one of the um, uh, Holocaust Remembrance, um, the Yad Vashem, either in Washington, D.C., or in um, uh, Israel, when you get to the end of the um, exhibits, you get taken into an area where you get to see examples where genocide has taken place all over the world. It's not just Jews, whether it's Muslims in China or it's uh, people in Africa or um, um, ethnic cleansing that's been going on in Europe for years. It's, it, it, if we don't learn from our history, we're bound to repeat it. And I think that uh, I can't thank Mr. Kessler enough for bringing these programs to East Brunswick and to our community. I thank each and every one of you for um, spending your time with us this evening, and especially those that have been doing this for a couple of years now. Um, they're wonderful programs. And, uh, and if there's any take-home lesson, please teach your children. So um, thank you very much, Melissa, and um, I look forward to a really wonderful program. Okay, without further ado, I will be introducing our presenter for the evening. Dr. Glenn Diner is professor and chair of the religion department at Sarah Lawrence College. His work explores the religious and social history of Polish Jewry. As a Guggenheim Fellow, Diner will study how the mass mystical movement known as Hasidism became politicized in the early 20th century Poland. His monograph, tentatively titled Exile of the Spirit, Hasidism in Interwar and Nazi-Occupied Poland, will chart Hasidism's emergence as both a political force and a culture of resistance in a context of coercive assimilation, anti-Semitism, and eventually Nazi-sponsored genocide. Welcome, Dr. Diner.
Okay, thanks so much, Melissa. Um, I just wanna say what an honor it is to be here um, to celebrate the publication of Michael Kessler's important memoir, The Remnant. Michael has been such a friend and mentor and sponsor of my work over the years. So I love the, uh, the opportunity to return the favor and, and present this, this uh, lecture in honor of this, this really great publication. I hope you all read. Um, I'd like to begin my talk with a poem by Primo Levi that is entitled, If This Is a Man. And Dr. Tamara Reps Freeman, professor of Holocaust ethnomusicology and Montclair State University and St. Elizabeth University will accompany the poem with the familiar melody of Rojinkis mit Mandlin, Raisins and Almonds, which was composed in 1860 by Avram Goldfaden, the founder of modern Yiddish theater. And tomorrow we'll be playing her 1935 Joseph Bausch viola, which was rescued from Berlin during the Shoah. You who live safe in your warm house, you who find returning the evening and friendly faces, consider if this is a man who works in the mud, no peace, who fights for a scrap of bread, who dies because of a yes or a no. Consider if this is a woman without hair, without name, with no more strength to remember, her eyes empty and her room cold like a dog in the winter. Meditate that this came about. I commend these words to you, my hearts. At home in the street, going to bed rising. Repeat them to your children, and may your house fall apart, may illness and may your children turn their faces from you. Thanks, Tamara. This poem appears at the beginning of Primo Levi's classic memoir, Survival in Auschwitz, and it follows the form of the famous Shema prayer. Yet it exhorts us to remember not God, but to remember loss, the loss of friends, family, peace, hair, fertility, identity, even humanity. And while the original Shema prayer offers both blessings for remembering and curses for forgetting, Levy's poem offers only curses for forgetting. We are to carve the memory of loss upon our hearts for it's loss that unites all victims of the Holocaust and in a sense unites all of us. Survivors endured many different kinds of trauma. Each one had their own specific experience. Some survived concentration camps, some survived ghettos, mass killings over pits, and some like Michael Kessler managed to narrowly escape each of these fates. Yet all survivors of the Holocaust experienced the traumatic loss of family, friends, and community. So it is to those lost family members and friends and communities that I'd also like to dedicate tonight's talk. The first thing I'd like to do is to provide a historical framework to the Holocaust. And then I'd like to delve into several memoirs that I think really are united by this sense of loss. And uh, finally, we'll talk about Michael's very important addition to this pantheon of Holocaust uh, memoirs. Uh, but first, here's a map of Nazi-occupied Poland, beginning in 1939 when the Nazis invaded Poland. Um, really, Polish Jewry consisted of 3.3 million people. 
on the eve of this invasion. And uh, as the Nazis entered and occupied, you know, many of these Jews were, were murdered uh, and killed even in the bombings of, of cities like Warsaw and Lodz, or just killed randomly as uh, terror tactics. Many fled, um, but it was a real surprise because the Soviet Union, based on the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, was invading from the east. So Poland, as you see here, becomes divided between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. And it's a relatively permeable border. You can cross either way, but no one really knows which is going to be worse. And we'll talk about why the Soviet option also seemed not such a great option at the time. But the thing I'd like to emphasize is Nazi Germany annexes a large part of Poland, leaves a middle zone in which um, it's mainly consisting of ghettos where the Jewish population is concentrated. And um, the ethnic Germans are largely sifted out and pushed westward into the German zone. And then we have the Soviet zone right here to the east, which um, is where you know, there are a lot of Jews you know, to begin with, about 1.5 million before, before the war. And uh, they find themselves under Soviet rule. It's that population in flux though that's interesting because they're the ones who are trying to make the decision whether to flee uh, into the German zone or into the Soviet zone. It turns out that life under occupied, uh, uh, under, under Soviet occupation is bearable. You know, there's certainly a lot of suffering and mass deportations often to Siberia, but basically the Soviets allow Jews to live and even will allow them to help run uh, local communal self-government. When the Holocaust begins in earnest is when the Germans betray the Soviet Union and invade. And that's during Operation Barbarossa, two years later in June of 1941. And during this period, around 1.5 million Jews are murdered by bullets by shootings over pits. And uh, these are horrific, just uh, methodical, often point blank killings uh, where Jews are just forced to line up in front of pits and then shot. And if you're interested in this uh, horrific period, Christopher Browning wrote the classic account of, of this, um, this period and um, gives us a sense of, of what the mass killings were like. But there are now since then many accounts of this um, brutal period of, uh, of the Holocaust. Um, and uh, the most infamous are Ponari Forest outside of Vilna, where 60,000 roughly Jews were murdered over, um, they, were, they were ditches for fuel tanks. And I just visited there recently and saw where it happened and uh, Babi Yar, Kiev, where around 33,000 Jews were, were shot in the first day, and then the total of around 100,000. Now, this was very trying for the um, Einsatzgruppen, who I, I put the word up there before, the police battalions, um, the detachments of Army Reserve and uh, you know, not other Nazi auxiliary troops and Ukrainian auxiliaries who followed the German army as they invaded eastward. And they were the ones who were instructed to really kill the civilian Jewish population as well as Bolsheviks and other groups. And it was uh, considered uh, you know, too traumatic for them. So the Nazis start conceiving more, um, I, I would say easier methods of killing on their own soldiers, their own personnel. And that's where they start experimenting with gas vans. At the Helmnok camp, um, around 200,000 Jews are murdered, many by this method, which uh, really involves using the exhaust from uh, the van and just um, running it inside and then driving it you know, a while until people asphyxiate on the inside, just absolutely horrific, but of course, much easier on the personnel. Um, and then we get to concentration camps, which were a combination of work or labor camps 
and death camps. And Auschwitz is the most infamous one, Auschwitz-Birkenau, which is, Birkenau is about five minutes from Auschwitz. That's where there were five gas chambers and um, Auschwitz itself was more of a work camp. And um, 6,000 Roma or gypsies were killed there, 70,000 Polish Catholics and around a million Jews. And uh, Auschwitz really became a symbol of the Holocaust, partly because of the memoirs that were written by survivors uh, like Primo Levi and Elie Wiesel. Just note though, that when, when an event or a place like this becomes iconic, it can obscure as much as it reveals because there were so many other experiences during this horrific event that were different from Auschwitz. And in a way, uh, you know, Auschwitz was not the worst or not the most severe case because you also had strictly death camps that were part of this Operation Reinhard. Um, the three camps that were built strictly for the purpose of killing people. In other words, um, very little labor or any other purpose with Treblinka, Sobibor, and Belzhets. And just to give you a map of the entire thing, um, you'll see Auschwitz down on the left-hand side, east, uh, southeast, that's near the city of Krakow. And you can still visit it today. Um, it's relatively intact if you ever go to Krakow. Um, it, Treblinka is right outside of Warsaw because it was built with the express purpose of killing the huge Warsaw ghetto population, which consisted of as many as 460,000 Jews at one time, but really roughly 400,000. Um, and around uh, 350,000 were deported to Treblinka. Another 70 so thousand died of starvation and disease in the ghetto itself. And um, Treblinka is another really infamous camp, a place of, uh, strictly a place of death. And um, you know, uh, the, other, the other camp that you find in memoirs a lot is Belgians, uh, which is located near the city of Lvov or Lemberg. Now, why not make the obvious choice and flee into the Soviet Union as long as the borders are permeable? Well, there were problems with the Soviet experience. Uh, the Soviets uh, under Stalin had already murdered um, almost 6 million people before the Holocaust even started, different groups. I mean, if you count artificial famine in the case of Ukrainians, around 750,000 Polish Catholics had been killed, plus Stalin's purges. And then the massive gulag system, which consisted of camps, some have called them concentration camps too. They're basically labor camps where you see by this map, I mean, it was just a massive prison system. And it was hard to tell whether life would be uh, worse or better in the Soviet Union. And if you're religious, a religious Jew, or really religious in any religion, you had to also deal with anti-religious campaigns, which were pretty devastating to those who were pious. And so it's not an easy choice. But um, what happens is around 1.2 million local Jews are in the Soviet zone and 300,000 roughly Polish Jews flee into the Soviet zone. And of those around 70,000 Jews are either deported or flee to Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and Siberia. And Siberia turns out to be an amorphous term that really refers to many, many different places. Um, it's, it's the place where you're deported to, in a lot of people's memory, for refusing to become a Soviet citizen voluntarily, for being suspected as a counter-revolutionary and nationalist, and the list goes on and on. A uh, very important book about this, by the way, uh, just came out. It's um, called Survival on the Margins. It's by Eliana Adler. And this is um, really, I think, now the standard account of the experience of Jewish refugees in wartime Soviet territories. Now, uh, Jews are allowed to repatriate in really the wake of the war, towards the end of the war in 1945, 
and around 230,700 Jews return to their homes. And here's actually a picture of a group waiting for repatriation in 1946. The news gets out rather slowly, you know, because the Soviet Union is vast and the news, news uh, outlets are not so sophisticated. So many are, are continuing to labor on collective farms throughout Uzbekistan, Siberia, and other places, or languishing in camps. Uh, but gradually, people start returning to their homes, and Jews try to return to their homes as well. The problem is they're not welcomed. You know, they've come to be known as ghost citizens in the historiography. Lukasz Krzyżanowski is the young Polish historian who coined the term, who writes about Jews trying to return to their homes in Poland and finding uh, either a Polish Ukrainian family living in their homes and they're not happy to see them. And you have horrific attacks after the Holocaust against Holocaust survivors, Jews who have tried to return home. The most infamous case is the Kielce pogrom, which happens on July 4th, 1946. 40 Jews are killed. These pogroms happened in many parts of Poland. And uh, they happened really out of resentment that, you know, you're living in somebody's home and um, your Jews arrived to take their home back, but your neighbors didn't have their Jews come back and it seems unfair. I mean, these are the kinds of things you read about in, in memoirs and testimonies. The other feeling is that Jewish life is cheap. You know, this is what the Holocaust taught. And so you do have a case of Poles killing Jews after they survived the Holocaust. Um, and uh, the count is around 750 Jews who are murdered total. Usually it was more like being just chased away or beaten. And so what do you do? Most Jews travel on to displaced persons camps, DP camps. And here's a map on the left of the various DP camps um, throughout Germany and Austria. And uh, two thirds of the residents are Polish Jews. And on the right, you'll see a picture of commemoration because you know, people began to memorialize the dead, but they also would organize all kinds of youth activities and educational facilities. And I think it's important to emphasize, you know, who survived the Holocaust? Now, some Jews did survive in hiding, thanks to really heroic Polish neighbors who risked their lives and the lives of their families to hide them. Uh, some survived by just concealing themselves, by hiding out in the open with fake identifications. Some managed to survive ghettos and concentration camps as well. But really the majority, um, almost, I, I would say something like around 250,000 survived because they fled deep into the Soviet interior. And it's that experience that's covered in Michael Kessler's memoir. And I just wanna emphasize how important Holocaust memoirs are. You know, these are all narratives of loss at their base and they're very, very different experiences, each one of them. And I'm gonna go over these five memoirs very briefly, just to give you a sample of the very different experiences, but really united by that sense of loss. You know, I'm, I'm sorry to have to say this, but there's just no, there's no redemption here. There's no victory here. There's just uh, the feeling of being bereft afterwards. Yes, you survived. But what does it mean to, to survive and have lost you know, all of your loved ones or most of your loved ones? And that's really what comes across in each of these accounts. Now, some of these are not very well known, which is precisely why I wanted to talk about them. Uh, one of the least well known is Justina's diary, which I just showed on the left. Um, and she was a heroic fighter in the Krakow ghetto who went on missions with her co-Zionist uh, youth group members to sabotage German operations and wreak vengeance against collaborators. And after uh, she's talking about one of the missions, she said, 
Later that night, everyone would be exhilarated, <coughs> excuse me, by a sense of accomplishment. And the adrenaline would be running too high for anybody to sleep. But in spite of their high spirits, they were deeply scarred. So this, this is just one example, you know, um, uh, Gusta writes her memoir in 1943 while she's in prison, awaiting execution. She actually writes it on toilet paper, very rough toilet paper, very hardy toilet paper. And she writes this entire memoir recalling these heroic days of fighting back against the Germans and feeling that sense of exhilaration. But what she notes at the end, which is why this quote is so important, is the scarring that occurs. You know, she had lost also her, her closest friends, her family, and that scarring just never goes away. So uh, there, there's just no, there, there's no sense of triumph in any of these activities that's enduring because of this. Now, another uh, very different memoir is, is Salal Perechodnik, whose, the title that was given it to it is, Am I a Murderer? Because he was a Polish policeman who actually wound up loading his own wife and child onto a train. And you see the picture on the right-hand side. And um, he survived, he wrote his memoir in Heidi in 1943. And then out of despair, he just wound up killing himself. You know, he just couldn't bear the guilt of, of having done this. And of course, he loaded lots of other Jews onto trains as well. And he writes on August 19th of the preceding year, 1943, something died in me. And that's when he had to deport his own family. A living man remained, but one who's not capable of suffering. Truthfully speaking, the survival of the war no longer has such great significance. You know, so even though he, in a sense, did everything right um, as you know, an opportunist, he managed to survive. He realizes while he's in hiding that survival is actually not the most important thing. You know, that um, survival means very little if he bears the guilt of the death of his own family. And this is the way he felt. Now, of course, you know, he's, he's not empowered in a conventional sense, he doesn't have the kind of agency that um, allows us to really call him a murderer, I think. And it's a very, uh, you know, it, it's a very ambivalent kind of a thing. How do we treat these Jewish policemen who loaded their fellow Jews onto trains? There's recently, by the way, a book on the Jewish policemen that just came out by Katajina Persson, which is spelled like person. I really, really recommend it. It's about the Warsaw Ghetto Police. And she gives a very complex picture of these Jewish policemen. Many of them thought they were doing good things and actually did good things. Gradually they're corrupted. And um, then they're complicit in first uh, hauling off fellow Jews to do labor, um, helping Germans execute them in labor camps and finally loading them onto trains, uh, deporting them to their deaths, all on thinking they're saving themselves and their families. And guess what? very few of them survived themselves after they'd um, done this and essentially collaborated. Um, they themselves were loaded on the trains and, and murdered for the most part. And that's uh, really a part of the tragedy of all this. Now, one of the most iconic memoirs is Survival of Auschwitz by uh, Primo Levi, which was first published very soon after the Holocaust under the title, If This Is a Man. It was published first in Italian. And Levy too talks about that loss. You know, even though he survived, there's simply no redemption, there's no triumph. At the very end of the memoir, he writes, um, because we also are broken, conquered, even if we know how to adapt ourselves, even if we've learned how to find our food to resist the fatigue and cold, even if we return home. So in other words, even though he survived, he realized that something's just been permanently taken from him and from his fellow survivors by the Nazis who are just kind of looking at them with this look on their face of, of triumph themselves. Uh, even though the Nazis are about to be conquered by the Soviets, they, they, they've taken something from them. And that was so poignant about uh, one of the most poignant moments in a very poignant memoir 
I think, you know, if I were to isolate those poignant moments, I would say in the very beginning where Levy, Levy um, talks about how everything's been taken from him, his hair, his identity, his name is now a number, and he goes on this way and he says that this is, this is the lowest that a person can actually be reduced. And yet throughout the memoir, he shows how humanity can be claimed in certain ways. You know, reciting Dante with a fellow prisoner, um, receiving a gift of food from a non-Jewish prisoner who brings it to him every day, who's also Italian and they chat over the fence. And he's reminded that, that there is still humanity in the world. It's, it's really one of the most moving accounts, an absolute classic of Western literature. And I highly recommend it if you haven't read it or if you haven't read it in, uh, in some years, take a look at it again. It's just, um, it gets, gets better as literature every single time. Um, and then of course the iconic Holocaust memoir, Night by Elie Wiesel. Night, you may be interested to know, began as a Yiddish manuscript in eight, of 80, 862 pages written about uh, 10 years after the event. And it was gradually whittled down in its various permutations. So first it was actually published in a much shorter version and then published in French, even shorter. And then in New York, it was published as Night in 1960 and only 116 pages. And I think that's one of actually the strengths of the memoir that it's cinematic. One of my students at Sarah Lawrence described it this way. It's cinematic because, you know, instead of drawing you through things slowly, it's kind of like, like scenes, you know, where you just have flashes of deep insight. And for me, one of those poignant moments is again, where he speaks about the loss, what has been taken from him. This is actually a famous quote from the memoir. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp that turned my life into one long night, seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed in smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consume my faith. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things, even were I condemned to live as long as God himself, never. And night is interesting, you know, uh, because it's also a loss of faith. Primo Levi doesn't enter as, as a believer, as a pious Jew, but Elie Wiesel enters as a scholar, you know, a young scholar. Um, he's, after the war, he really distinguished himself not only as a Holocaust memoirist, but as somebody who conveys the Hasidic experience, the rich folklore and memory of Hasidism through his renditions of Hasidic tales. So he really does try to reclaim some of that, what was lost during the Holocaust as well, that uh, beautiful and poignant Eastern and Central European culture. And that's also one of his great gifts um, throughout his uh, distinguished career. Now, then we have Michael Kessler, who's being honored here tonight. And um, his fabulous memoir, The Remnant, on burning wings to displaced persons camp and beyond. Michael makes all the right choices in a sense, right? He, um, he flees when he should flee. He uh, defects from the Red Army when he should. And he flees into Uzbekistan and he returns to Poland and then thence to a displaced persons camp and to America. So he's raised in the town of Dubno, Poland, which is actually famous for, um, uh, if, if you're from this world, it's famous as the town of the Dubner Magid, who is a non-Hasidic um, sort of folk hero who had very wise sayings that were quoted you know, throughout East European Jewish lands. And that was his town, Dubno, Poland. It wound up in the Soviet zone with the initial invasion uh, for two years. And Michael was drafted into the Red Army 
and then he deserted and he fled to Uzbekistan where he worked on a collective farm and he eventually mastered the art of weaving. So he's able to make a living as a weaver. He returned to Dubno, Poland after repatriation. And um, that's one of the most poignant parts of the memoir because watch what happens when he returns home. My heart sank as we drew close. The house at 256 Berka Yoselovicha was now ward. Sorry, get rid of this. And shabby with a broken fence, peeling pink paint and his brick entrance obscured by a mass of overgrown weeds. Let me try to enter, Luba said. Moniak and I stayed behind as she climbed a few steps and knocked. The door cracked open. What do you want? A man asked in Ukrainian accent. I was hoping to look at the house I used to live in, Luba said quietly. Wait a minute. He stepped away and returned a moment later, carrying a pitchfork, nearly as tall as his diminutive form. Get out of here, you dirty Jews, or I'll kill you. That was their welcome. Michael at the very end you know, talks about how you know, maybe he made the right choices and yet, quote, the guilt and shame I felt at abandoning my parents was with me always. And my nightmares of deserting the Soviet army which had diminished with time had resurfaced haunting me, making me feel like a traitor, small and feeble, feeble. loneliness too gripped me. And I think that conveys the same sense of the other memoirs, just feeling bereft after this event, yes, you survived, but the, the loss is just uh, almost unbearable. I'd like to conclude with a quote by Jean Amery at the mind's limits. Amery writes, for nothing is resolved, no conflict is settled, no remembering has become a mere memory. What happened happened, but that it happened cannot be so easily accepted. I think that one thing that does come out of this, you know, if we're gonna consider this event not to have been a total waste, is these memoirs, these life experiences that are distilled, even though they're so tragic, they're distilled into this written form that allow us to at least learn something from these events, to learn about the cost of dehumanizing somebody, the cost of genocide, and the cost of survival as well. Thank you very much. So other than Jews in Israel wonder, how could many survivors return to live in places like Germany and Poland? Can you comment about these difficult feelings? Okay, you asked such an important question. Um, I spend a lot of time in Poland and you know, when you spend a lot of time in a place, it doesn't become quite so scary. It's even possible to forget what happened there, although it's harder for me as a historian to do so. Um, Jews are not only going back to Poland, they stayed there. Uh, significant numbers stayed there. You know, it was more communism that caused so many Jews to leave Poland and not just communism itself, but really the various regimes in 1968 you know, the communist regime under Gomulka became rather anti-Semitic and purged Jews from various uh, professions in order just to stay in power and you know, use anti-Semitism in an opportunistic way. And so a lot of Jews left Poland and it, it was down to around 10,000 the last I checked. And yet Jews are returning to Poland. How can you return to a, what could be seen as a massive Jewish cemetery? Well, uh, what I would say is, you know, if you, are in Poland often enough, you start to meet really great people, Polish Catholic historians, journalists, artists, who really in a genuine way are trying to come to grips with the tragedy that happened there. You know, it's, um, it's not fair to say that they caused the Holocaust. We can argue about what role many Poles played in the Holocaust, but this is really by and large something that was done to them. And, um, Yet they try to come to terms with you know, their role in the Holocaust and even before and after the Holocaust in 
fomenting anti-Semitic sentiment, anti-Jewish violence. And, you know, it's a very difficult discussion that goes on and on. And that makes it a little easier to be there because at least people are trying to work through these traumas and their the responsibility of you know the Polish nation in those traumas, uh, and then there's Germany. You know, I was a, I was guest lecturer in Hamburg, and I happened upon a Jewish school, and I talked to the principal of the Jewish school for a while. And all these Israelis are moving to, to Hamburg, Germany. It's a great place. The economy is good, and so you know, what does this say? Um, I think, you know, one thing about being a diaspora people is it's hard to hold a grudge. You know, it's um, Jews are still moving around the world and uh, including Israelis in search of better lives of better economic opportunities. And if you didn't go back to a place where there'd been a anti-Jewish attack, you know, you'd have very few places left to go. So there is this kind of sense that, okay, a lot of years have passed. Um, it's okay to go back there. It's safer now. Um, Germany made major reparations. Poland has, in its way, tried to make certain reparations, not as financial, but in other significant ways through memorialization and um, through museums and that kind of a thing. And I think you know, Jews should give credit where credit's due when there's historical investigation, memorialization, museums, we really should allow you know, Jews, I think, you know, I'm not gonna speak for everybody, but Jews really should allow for different countries to do repentance, to do tshuva, and to try to come to terms with the painful past. The problem is when they don't do repentance, when they don't do tshuva, when they deny or apologize for the past, and that's you know, what the problem is a lot of the time. So I guess that's the way I would answer it. These aren't necessarily large and flourishing Jewish communities, but they are coming back. And I think we do have to let nature take its course. So we have another question. Um, it's from Steve. What is the current state of affairs with Polish government and how they embrace displaced Holocaust survivors? Okay, so um, there, there has been restitution that's happened. You know, especially in terms of real estate, but it's been made rather difficult. And the way I sort of had it explained to me when I was in Poland one time was it's very difficult when there aren't deeds. In other words, when there isn't proof of real estate being owned by a Jewish family. And it's actually paralyzed Polish real estate in a certain sense, because everybody's afraid you'll build a huge skyscraper and then suddenly a Jewish family produces evidence that they own the land. Suddenly they own the skyscraper. And what do you do with homes that have been inhabited by several Polish families now for you know over 50 years? Uh, should Jews be allowed to go back in there and reclaim them? And you know, so it's a, it's a complicated issue. I'm not sure, you know, you, you see what's happening in, in Sheikh uh, Jamar and other places in Israel now where it's very hard to establish rightful ownership of places and uh, pushing people out is, is a very problematic endeavor. And this is the case in Poland as well. So what do we do? Well, the Polish government has, I think, usually been against allowing Jews you know, years and years later to come and reclaim property, but it does happen. Now, in terms of restitution and other ways, there's been a lot of symbolic restitution which I think we do have to take seriously. And that's what I alluded to really in my last answer, where you, know, you have to find a way to move on. And you know, it's healthy for everybody. It doesn't mean forgetting. It doesn't even necessarily mean, mean forgiving the culprits. Um, now we have a very, very problematic government in power in Poland, peace. The, um, the uh, Peace and Justice Party is a very right-wing nationalist party that um, has been accused of whitewashing the Jewish uh, tragedies and the Polish culpability in these Jewish tragedies. And um, how do you deal with that? You know, what happens when you have a government that's less willing to come to terms with that very difficult past? 
And you know, that's something we've tried to figure out how to do. There was this law that was attempted to be passed against writing anything, against uh, really claiming that Poles are responsible for concentration camps, responsible for calling them Polish death camps. And I think there was a, I think there was a valid fear that by calling something a Polish death camp, people would get the wrong idea. You know, these were sponsored and built by Germans. At the same time, there is a degree of culpability that has to be taken seriously. So, um, so what happened was there was massive worldwide protest when this uh, when this law was passed, and then it turned out okay. So, you won't go to prison for um, for claiming these things for for falsely or wrongly or hyperbolizing you know, the Polish culpability in the Holocaust. But you can be sued, and this recently happened to two authors, um, Basha Engelking and uh, and uh, uh, Grabowski in a book they wrote about um, Polish culpability in the Holocaust. And you know, they were sued in court and now it's being appealed. And that's a very complicated issue. Um, you know, it's, you, you do on the side of the historians, you do have to be very careful because people you're writing about, you know, you want to check and double check your sources to make sure you're not somehow uh, slandering somebody, you know, inadvertently. Um, believing one testimony that they were culpable and maybe there are other testimonies that, that show they weren't culpable and that kind of a thing. And this is all being debated among historians. What I wanna say, I know I've gone on too long, but what I wanna say is the last thing about this issue is you know, the problem of historians um, being sued is really anytime you involve outside groups, in this case, governmental groups, it becomes politicized and it becomes tainted and that's really at the crux of the controversy today is you should really let historians do their job. You know, and if you find there's an error and somebody has been um, somehow libeled in a historical account of the Holocaust, so you should allow historians to check that and write against it and critique it. And um, you know, the authors then suffer in terms of reputation and maybe they'll do the right thing. And, um, and uh, retract what they wrote, but you go to outside groups and that's when it all gets gets very, very politicized and, and nasty. And that's unfortunately what's been happening today. Yeah, a lot of the comments were talking about how we've been seeing the politicization of things that there's a lot going on. There, there are, there's lots of things going on and it, we just hope that history can help clarify where we have been and where we make recommendations for what we should be doing. So um, let's see. So many survivors of the Shoah went on to lead meaningful, successful lives. How do we account for this remarkable mix of resilience and psychological damage? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really a question for, I suppose, the survivor themselves. Everybody dealt with it differently. Unfortunately, you know, several of the memoirists I showed you, um, Primo Levi, among them, um, took their own lives. You know, they just couldn't bear the weight of what had happened, the weight of the loss. So it's very difficult to generalize. Um, some lost their faith, you know, and became completely secularized as a result, atheistic as a result. Others became more religious as a result, and their their, their faith was fortified as a result of having survived. And um, you know, everybody responds differently. It seems that those who have the resilience to survive an ordeal like the Holocaust. Um, maybe often have the resilience to survive the aftermath. That's only my logical deduction. I'm not a psychologist, but it seems to me uh, there's a certain consistency there. Um, cheerful resilience, optimism is part of this. And you know, if you really think about it, religion itself is optimism. You know, the belief in a sort of guiding uh, higher power is a form of optimism as well. That helps. Uh, one last thing I'd like to say about this, though, honestly, is the art of writing. You know, writing allows you to take all that pain, suffering, and loss and turn it into something poignantly beautiful. And it allows you to process much more and create something out of, out of this loss. And I think maybe that's also a key to what's allowing people to live long, long after these tragic events.
saw a comment from Ted Kessler. Unfortunately, there's a cheapening of the Holocaust on the daily basis, comparing anything to the Holocaust. Uh, the recent one was comparing mask wearing to, uh, to Nazi uh, legislation by our favorite politician, who's uh, maybe maybe not our favorite. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's a trivializing of the Holocaust, these analogies, and it's a huge problem. You know, at the same time, we have to be able to say that there are lessons to be learned from this event, you know, and um, there are times when we have to say this is a red flag, you know, something's red flag. And I'm not talking about mask wearing, of course, but, uh, you know, things happen even in our own country that are red flags that we have to remind ourselves again, you know, the Holocaust did occur because of a sequence of events. And if you start seeing that sequence being repeated, you have every right to recall the events of the Holocaust and to say, this is reminiscent of this facet. You know, I think that's not cheapening. You know, I think that's not trivializing the Holocaust. So we really have to be able to learn from this in that without saying that everything's the Holocaust, because if everything's the Holocaust, then of course nothing's the Holocaust. And we wind up leveling the entire um, the entire tragedy and that's exactly what we don't want to do so we had one last minute question i think this, this may have to be near our ending down um they said they're joining late but thank you for being able to come in even though it's been there um how do we prevent genocide genocide is enough being done isn't the far right always in the fringe rain to come in okay look let, let's be fair here um it's not just the far right that engages in uh, in genocide. You know, Stalin on the far left, you know, the Soviet Union, genocidal uh, genocidal events happened even before you know even before Hitler came to power. It's, it was, there were large numbers of people being killed. Um, so I think that uh, and and really well well into the 1930s, you know. So it happens on the left. It happens on the right. And a really good book to read about this is Hannah Arendt's Totalitarianism, where she makes this argument. Now, the problem is not necessarily extreme left-wing or extreme right-wing politics. It's the dehumanization that goes on in the name of politics, where large groups of people are deemed expendable, dangerous, threatening, and have to be eliminated. And so Arendt, in this beautiful uh, three-volume work, Totalitarianism, describes this process and how it be, really becomes a machine that devours even its own eventually. So, um, you know, how do we avoid genocide from occurring? <laughs> I think, you know, it becomes temptation. You know, nationalism is like a drug. And uh, I think religious fervor can be like a drug where, where you start getting this tribal feeling that we want purity, that we want a homogenous society. And that temptation is very strong, you know, for some people more than others. Anytime you're starting to think in terms of homogeneity and um, eliminating certain groups of people, you know, that that's the path to genocide, absolutely. You know, and probably the best way to avoid that is by avoiding dehumanizing groups of people in your own everyday rhetoric, in your own speech, uh, calling people out on it when they do. And um, standing up against violence um, of other forms. Because the interesting thing that uh, sociologists have found is that dehumanization precedes genocide, but it also acts as an accelerant. You know, once you commit violence, you dehumanize these groups even more. And so it's this kind of vicious circle and it takes on a life of its own. So, so it really does begin with resisting the urge to dehumanize any groups, even your enemies, and um, remembering the value of human life. And, you know, it's always good to get to know people and talk to them, different kinds of people. And then suddenly you remember that um, they're not some, some scary abstract group that's a threat to you. They're real people and uh, you can have real relationships. So uh, I'll stop my preaching there, but, but um, hopefully, we, hopefully we remember that lesson. For yeah. Art asked, what is the position of the Catholic Church? And I guess we can extend that to other large religious groups and how they view all of this. So I'm assuming we mean what's the position of the Catholic Church 
about the Holocaust and about what happened. It, it's very complicated. You know, the um, um, Pope John Paul II was incredibly forthcoming. He was Polish himself. He knew Jews growing up. And he really did um, attempt to take ownership of whatever role the church and anti-Semitism played in the Holocaust, asked Jews for forgiveness, and um, demanded an end to any form of anti-Semitism and genocide. So that was, that was great. There were also forces within the church that were demanded that Pope Pius XII be canonized as a saint. Even though, um, uh, as Cardinal Pacelli, um before he became Pope, he'd, he'd orchestrated the, um, the Concordat, this, this endorsement of Nazi Germany, and, and had refused to really take a strong stand in uh, defense of Jews, and really took a very pragmatic kind of stance that he should just be worried about Catholics and protecting Catholics. And if he angers the Nazis too much, sticking up for other groups, then Catholics could be next. You know, it, it was a very sort of um, almost, uh, I would say, um, overly pragmatic kind of a stance, which was a real letdown. And yet there, there are these attempts to canonize him. So I, I really think that the Catholic Church, like any vast institution, is going to be diverse. But things seem to have moved in the right direction. And, you know, John Paul II was an extraordinary pope, and I think this current pope is also very much against hatred and, you know, and, and anti-Semitism too. So that that should give us all encouragement, and I think we should turn, return the favor, you know, and um, all of us in our own way uh, try to be tolerant of and accepting of other groups you know, that are on our own. So there are some interesting comments about, um, you know, Mao and Stalin and Hitler and and so on. Um, and I think there's a good lesson there. When you get to know other cultures intimately, especially their language, it's more difficult to hate them. I would add, you know, the education is really important, but also personal connections are really important too. And you know, being willing to speak out when when you hear members of your own group stereotyping and dehumanizing, you know, other groups, marginalized groups. And if you're willing to stand up, even at the risk of a little bit of unpopularity, um, that's exhibiting the prophetic voice, which is what Abraham Joshua Heschel insisted, is that um, we not quiet our consciences. You know, we not uh, suppress that, that really uh, biblical imperative to speak out, to defend marginalized groups. And I think, you know, if we could really live our lives in that way and, uh, try to embody that prophetic voice, which speaks out in favor of justice and against oppression and against you know, marginalization, stereotypes and dehumanization, then we'll just be a better society and one person can really make a difference. Yeah, and Steve Fox said, um, challenging slogans and defending truth helps. I think that's a very succinct way of putting that as well. David Kessler is also talking about arguing for avoiding equivalencies. Um, can we really offer equivalency? Was Mao as directly as evil as Hitler? You know, comparative is, that's a question that he believes needs answering. Look, um, no, of course, comparisons are always um, problematic. And, you know, Mao and Stalin are very different from Hitler. Hitler, you know, if we're going to really distill this to a soundbite, you know, Hitler um, provided much really, um, really committed a much more focused and intensified genocide against a single people in particular. Of course, Hitler killed members of other groups as well, but it was the single-mindedness and this condensed aspect of Nazi genocide against Jews, which I think makes Nazi genocide and makes Hitler uh, a little different from these, uh, from these other murderous dictators. Um, but let's just agree that they were all murderous dictators who really, you know, their societies fell into the trap of allowing them to come to power and allowing them to dehumanize other groups of people. And this is the path to genocide. So I will take a last minute for anyone to answer any questions. Dr. Diner, thank you so much. You've been doing this for years, even though last year was a bit of a hiatus. I'm very, in the library is very appreciative of you taking your time to come and speak 
and share these important stories to make sure they are not forgotten. And thank you to Dr. Kessler for sharing his vision about bringing, this, bringing these great programs to the community and trying to share them for the future. Um, any other questions in the chat? I just wanna say like we've, we've all been through a lot this past, uh, this past year and um, I hope next time we can all meet in person um, but this is really a singular event. I'm so glad that we got to do this in honor of Michael Kessler's memoir, you know, which is really an important facet of this tragic uh, period of time. So I encourage you to read it and to read these other memoirs. Okay. But thanks for the wonderful questions. And uh, Michael, congratulations on this, on this enormous achievement. And um, I hope to see you all in person soon. Thank you for joining us for this week's Encore presentation. To join us for live programs or to learn more about the East Brunswick Public Library, visit our website at ebpl.org.